is why I love coming to Calvary. This is amazing. Well, it is, as Alan said, it's, it's really good to be here. Um, yeah, I've known Andy forever. It's funny. I've set a precedence that there are literally people that say, not that you come to listen to God's word, but you also come because you want to hear stories about Andy and I. And, um, and, and I have a lot of them. Um, I, I, I'm not going to go into to anyone, any, anything specifically, but, but I will get to something that Andy does, which is, which is humorous in just a moment. It's almost Thanksgiving, and we all love Thanksgiving for all the reasons that, that we know to be true. Uh, we get to come together, we get to eat, we get to watch football, we get to eat turkey, and I love dark meat. Can we just start there? Like, I love dark meat. I know some of you are on like the white meat side of things, so, um, but there's stuffing, and then there's all those other things, but there's a Thanksgiving tradition that I look forward to every year, and it has to do with your pastor. Have you seen this video that Andy does every year? If you haven't, he has this ceramic turkey, <laughs> right? If you've seen this, and every Thanksgiving, he fills this up with gravy, and then he takes this video. And you can see the food everywhere, and then he focuses on his plate, and there's turkey and mashed potatoes and stuffing, and then you hear the sound effects of the gravy coming out of this turkey, and then this is your pastor, makes little vomiting noises with the gravy. <laughs> And then you just see the gravy just pour all over the plate. And apparently that is how your pastor gives thanks to the Lord for all that he has done. But the purpose of the gathering of Thanksgiving, as we all know, is not just to enjoy a meal, but to, to what? To give thanks. Ultimately, to show thanks to God, since according to the scriptures, every good and perfect gift comes from him. But sometimes, if we're honest, we don't feel thankful, right? Some of us in this room are, are going through maybe a really hard time. Some of us come into church today, and, and we actually feel the opposite of thankful. We are, for many reasons, frustrated and maybe even resentful. Well, I want to encourage you that God is here he loves you. He's in control of the universe, and he is present today in your chaotic reality. This morning, we're going to look at a story, a story where God is very much present in the time of suffering. The events we're going to look at are actually not that unusual. Many of us in this room are familiar with suffering. But the response of this individual that we're going to look at to this tragedy is extremely rare and worthy of imitating. So if you would, turn your Bibles, if you're not there already, to the book of Job. If you're new to your Bibles, I'd encourage you to get to know it. Job is kind of right in the middle. And if you hit the book of Psalms, then you've gone a little too far, okay? And you back up. We will look at Job, and I'm going to read a number of verses here, starting in verse 1. Job, chapter 1, verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning from evil. 
Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were also three or six, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in his house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite the three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. I want to drop down to verse 13. Now on that day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another one came and said, Your daughters and your sons were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Let's stop there. When I read those verses, I skipped over verses 6 through 12 on purpose because I want you to imagine in this moment, this is key to jump into the text and to think and to feel like Job. In that moment, Job has no idea what's going on in the throne room of God. And let's be honest, when there's suffering in our lives, you also don't know what's going on in the throne room of God. We, like Job, are here, and I want to ask you, what would you do in this moment? Literally everything that Job has for the most part is now what? It's gone. How would you respond? What would you do? My son is here. He is 10. And what if in a moment he was gone? Well, let's look at the response of Job. Out of all that was just told to him. Look at verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin nor did he blame God. So the next 30 minutes together, I want to draw out five observations, five reflections from this text, from the response of Job that we can apply to our lives. Reflection number one, worship is not exclusively tied to our feelings. Reflection number one, worship is not exclusively tied to our feelings. 
We see here in the text that Job is understandably heartbroken. He hears this news and he proceeds to tear, according to the text, his outer garments and shave his head. The first response of mourning that we see in the text was very common in the ancient Middle East. This tearing of his outer garment is a vivid image of being tore to your heart, to your very core. In modern day Judaism, there's actually a current uh, rite that they do when someone dies that they actually take scissors and they cut up to symbolize that their heart is broken and they're grieving. We also see that there's the act Job does of shaving the head. This represents substantial grief, removing all ornamental aspects, exposing your baldness, your brokenness to the world. And then it says in the text that after that he fell down and he worshiped. I think we should know that there's a time gap here. We often read narratives and we forget. I want you to think that when the messenger came, Job did not have the instrument to cut his hair. I think one of two things had to happen. Either he had to go into his house and get whatever instrument they used back then. Remember, this is, I mean, this is almost 4,000 years ago probably. Or he had to have one of the servants that he had remaining to go get an instrument to cut his hair. Job is weeping. He is crying. There are no mirrors in that day. You know what he's doing? He's taking his hair and he's taking this blunt, probably not sharp instrument and he is ripping out and cutting his hair. He doesn't care that it's not even. He doesn't care about how it looks. I bet it's painful. I bet he's crying and he is laying himself bare. But however it was done, the next action was purposeful. This reinforces an active, volitional act of worship. Make no mistake, this act of worship was fueled with emotion, with grief, with shock, it was an, it, but it was an intentional act of the will. What drives a man who is filled with sorrow to worship? What drives a man to set aside his emotions, to not be a slave to his feelings, to look beyond himself and look to God? I believe that it is someone who understands what true worship is. It is an expression of reverence. John Piper says this, and I think it's really good. True worship is the valuing or a treasuring of God above all things. We have to conclude in this text that in that moment of utter grief, Job placed a value on God, on worship, And he decided that even though he felt despondent and brokenhearted, he chose to run to God, to literally fall into his sovereign hands. But I want you to notice something here in the text. This scene that we look at, it is profoundly simple. The scene is just Job and God. No music, no preaching, no entertainment, just laying out, prostrate before God. Back in my youth ministry days, I would take trips to Mexico, and a number of years ago, I met Pastor Ramon. Maybe I've mentioned him before. At that time, he was 75 years old. I got to know him, he couldn't speak a lick of English, but uh, but his godliness was apparent. And I remember going into church one of the days, there was gonna be a youth revival that night, and I saw Pastor Ramon, the 75-year-old godly man, in the church building by himself, on his knees, head to the floor, praying, worshiping. 
I couldn't understand the language, but he is crying out to God that God would do a work in that room with those young people that night. I didn't understand a word he was saying, but it was just Pastor Ramon and God, and they worshiped. And it was real, and it was raw. I fear that many churches in America, the worship experience is centered around felt needs rather than just exalting and worshiping God. We are so consumeristic sometimes, and this is what it says, that we need more than God alone. We need to repackage God to a 21st century audience. I would argue too that Tom's job up here, Andy's job up here, is to simply point you to God. That's it. That's it. Points you to meditate, to consider, to exalt God's attributes, his character, his works, and get out of the way and point to him. John Piper goes on to say, right worship, good worship, pleasing worship depends on a right mental grasp of the way that God really is. And when that knowledge of the true God flows into worship, do you know what happened? Gratitude occurs. It has to. Gratitude, being thankful, is only accessible when we have a proper view of God because this causes us to have a proper view of ourselves. And when we see ourselves this morning as Helpless, rebellious, stubborn, unstable, disloyal to God at times. Then we see what? God is so patient with us, right? I mean, I could spend the next 30 minutes talking about how God has been patient with me just this week, right? He's so patient. He loves us. He forgives us. He fights for us. And when we realize that, the waves of gratitude come crashing in. Some of you right now should be going, man, I am so thankful of what God did with me even this week. And it's likely in the most difficult moment, I would imagine, I would think in Job's life to date, that he understood and desired more than anything in that moment to be with the one whom he chose to trust in spite of what he felt, in spite of his circumstances, Because I gotta believe that there was a part of Job, the human part of him, wanted to assign some blame to God for what happened to his kids. Next, let's look at reflection number two. Mourning is not a sign of weak faith. Mourning is not a sign of weak faith. I unabashedly am gonna tell you right now, much of this message is about raising and exalting your view of God. But with that, As we examine the previous point, Job did not hold back his grief. The sorrow that he felt from the tearing of his robe to the shaving of his head flowed freely from his soul. And it should, he felt the sting of death the grim reaper had won once again. But there is some misconception, I think, in parts of evangelicalism today that a high view of God and his sovereignty, that God is in control, that grief or mourning is almost unnecessary. I'm not gonna get into kind of the, uh, the different nuances of, of some th- different theology, but there is some people that I've actually heard say that if you truly elevate the absolute sovereignty of God and therefore you understand that everything must be the will of God, then, then we should just gladly accept it and even be happy about it. 
May I remind you, it was Jesus himself who, in a moment of great sorrow, he wept. The word weep or weeping in scripture, it's not just a little tear. It's not like Jesus was just stoic and one little tear came down his eye. He wept. And when you weep in that day, it is loud, it is audible, it is raw, when he heard about the death of his friend Lazarus. But through his sorrow, his hope was rooted in the promise of the resurrection. He knew that he in just a moment would what? Make Lazarus rise. And that's our hope too, right? That's why we mourn, we grieve differently as ones who have hope. Mourning looks different when there is hope. Hope allows the presence of gratitude during our suffering to come in, during our sorrow. This verse isn't behind us, but 1 Timothy 4.10 says this, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on a living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Because our God's alive, does we know what that means? I mean, he's here and he's present and he's listening to you and he's there for you when you need him. Day or night, our God is alive. And sidebar real quick, I would also add that Scripture seems to be clear that mature followers of Jesus actually should be defined as people who mourn regularly. Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, clearly the text is referring to a spiritual mourning. Clearly the text is saying that if you walk into this building today with a humble heart, examining spiritually your sin, your place before God, upholding his grace and his mercy, but you will be comforted. And there's no better place to be than feeling the blessing of God when you come in and take your faith seriously. I think some of the problem is we're such a superficial culture sometimes. We use all of our entertainment to uh, mask and numb reality. But when we allow God to come in in the real, genuine, raw moments of life, he speaks to us loudly. He comforts us. He is truly the one that brings satisfaction. We often, through the week, embrace a cheap substitute rather than the real thing. But God comes in, brings forgiveness, and the peace that surpasses all understanding. If we were to cry out to the God of all comfort, maybe this morning, one of you, or many of you, need to take something seriously in your faith. And I want you to be comforted that through your heaviness of conviction, God's right there to go, I'm here. And I'm gonna separate that as far as the east is from the west and come back to me right now. And I will fill you with my love and my grace and your peace. Next, we see reflection number three. Naked living is a good thing. Now, hold on. All right, Clint, that's kind of weird. All right, naked living is a good thing. All right, let's look again at verse 21. <clears throat> naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. This first observation must be Job's verbal expression of worship. We know that he got down on his face and he is worshiping God, but the verbal expression of this worship was acknowledging that we as humans come with nothing into the world, which is true, right? We swing on in with nothing, okay? 
and we leave this world with nothing. And if we think about it, this is actually a very profound, liberating way to live. Why? Because practically this means two things for Christians today. First, everything is from God and for God. Listen to what Colossians 1.16 says, it's behind me. It says this, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and what? For him. And this means naked living is obviously not about joining a nudist colony, okay? Let's just put that aside, all right? Rather, it's about living life with an open hand. Uh, have you ever noticed, um, okay, I was actually trying to bring in a quarter, and then I looked at this. This is a, we have a place in Fresno where I live, Blackbeards. It's like a mini golf, you know, batting cages. This is not a quarter. Anyways, what my point is, is that have you ever tried, if you were to put a quarter or some coin in your hand and hold it tight with the fist, do you know how difficult it is to undo someone's fingers? People with a minimal amount of strength, it is really hard. I would say, I mean, probably the, the young men over here, okay, of that clan could probably do it, but I mean, it's, it is difficult to open up this fist. My son, who's 10, there's no way that he could do it because it is locked in. Now, I say that some of us live our lives like this with our possessions, with our stuff. We hold it with such a tight fist. It clings to us. But as a follower of Christ, we need to live with an open hand, ready to share, ready to give, to have a loose grip on our possessions, to be hospitable. And remembering our stuff is actually God's stuff. And here's the harsh reality, unless you realize that it is God who is your creator and he's the owner of you, you will never be able to be used for his glory in the way that you were created to be used. You are his. And as his image bearers, there is so much that God wants to do with you, but we need to just surrender ourselves and go wherever you want. Whatever you want for me, God, I'm in. I'm an open hand. To you. Second, this means practically that we live with an eternal perspective. See, the concept of naked living also means that your mindset is spiritual and eternal, looking beyond this temporal existence. We need to focus on the stuff that matters for eternity. See, one of the greatest joys of the Christian life is that you are a new creation. You were blind, but now you can see. And therefore, everything begins to look different. In a sense, all of us before we came to faith were severely nearsighted. Our vision was narrow, corrupted, and myopic. But now we can see with new eyes. We now can look at our possessions differently. We can look at our gifts, our talents, our influences, even our children differently. Naked living means that the things that used to stick to us, affect us, hold us back, like the opinion of others, toxic thinking, toxic people, idolatry of money and possessions. Do you know what the freedom in Christ brings? They don't hold you anymore. They don't stick to you anymore. We have an unbreakable union in Jesus Christ, and because of that, we have access to his power. 
And that means we have been given a Holy Spirit barrier preventing those harmful influences to sticking to us anymore. Aren't you thankful for that? Should. Because now we're step free. So now leads us to reflection number four. God is behind everything that happens. God is behind everything that happens. Let's look again at verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's room. Naked I returned there. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's not forget what's happening in this context. Job literally lost everything. You get that Job didn't get to say goodbye to his kids, right? He didn't have closure. All he was left with was their empty beds. Yet the righteous Job, worshiping in spirit and in truth, could cry out from his soul, the Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In that moment, Job was saying, God, in my grief, I believe that you are still good. I choose, despite how I'm feeling, to uphold your sovereignty. I choose to exalt your wisdom, your power, and your plan for me and my family. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, in a good way. Now, many of us are uncomfortable with these words, and the Lord takes away. And the Lord takes away. This isn't some man that's just throwing out theological statements. He just lost his ten kids. The Lord takes away. It's normally at this time that the messy issue of theodicy tends to break in the conversation. What is theodicy? Andy doesn't use big words. Yeah, because I'm smarter than Andy. Anyway, so... So you got to get in a little bit there. Um, all right, what is, what is theodicy? Theodicy is a branch of theology or philosophy which attempts to solve the problem of evil. The problem that arises when we try to reconcile the existence of evil in the world with the existence of a God who is both benevolent and all-powerful. This is the challenge. See, because if he's all-powerful, why doesn't he eradicate evil right now? Okay, and because he allows evil to continue, is God actually good? Well, the answers are this. He will eradicate evil, and he is perfectly good. But why doesn't God step in? Well, that question is an appropriate, very human question to ask. But I want to let the word of God refine and renew our thinking, especially with the realities of human suffering. Behind me, let's look at Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. It says this, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring from the end and the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. This text reminds us that because God is all-powerful, victory is assured. Evil has an end. The cross broke the power of sin and death. The omnipotence of God assures us that Romans 8.28 can fulfill what it promises. And we know that for those who love good, 
God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 